Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub. I'm John Alois and I'm joined by Sean Degenhart. Hello, John. And John Redlingshafer. Hello there. We're going to start the show off like we usually do with our Disney views. And this week, I'm talking about Emmy nominations, 145 to be exact, for the Disney company. And we're going to focus in on Disney Plus, who had 19 Emmy nominations for a brand new streaming service. That's amazing. Crazy. It is. 15 in particular for The Mandalorian alone. John Favreau and Dave Filoni have done a fantastic job. And I know, Sean, you've seen all the episodes. John, not the biggest Star Wars fan. Maybe this is the show to bring you on board. What do you think? Uh, I'll try. I don't know, but I bless your hearts. I'll try. (laughs) Uh, Some other ones on there. Of course, we had the Imagineering story, which has a nomination. Um, The World According to Jeff Goldblum. Some of these things we've we've talked about in the past. Yeah, Porky asks a question. Yep, that was another one. I'm excited about that. Here's a little trivia for you. Uh, The first Emmy ceremony was in 1949. And in his career, Walt Disney was nominated four times and won for one series. Can you guess what it is? We don't have we don't have the uh, the rights to Jeopardy, so the theme song I would (laughs) sing that right now. But I'll I'll tell you, it was for his Disneyland series, and he got it for best producer in a film series in 1956, and well earned, obviously. Guys, I'm so giddy about our guest tonight, co-host of the Mousestalgia podcast, co-host of the Doom Buggy Spook Show, host of the Storied podcast, all about the Haunted Mansion, creator of DoomBuggies.com, and author of the unauthorized story of Walt Disney's Haunted Mansion. Please welcome to the Hyperion Hub, Jeff Bam. Well, thank you. It is an honor to be here on your show. I appreciate your uh, bringing me on. Oh, absolutely. And before I keep going, I just want to ask you, is it Bayham or Bam? Wow. That is such a great, a great <laughs> intricate question. I mean, I, it's, it's actually, I say Bayham all the time just because it's the closest, easiest way to communicate to my students, to people everywhere. It's actually Bam. It's kind of Welsh, I think, like Cheltenham, you know, Bam. <laughs> Perfect. You are involved in the world of Disney fandom and all these different things. Uh, you're an avid collector. You're, are a, you're a historian. Where did this fascination begin? You're from California. Did it start uh, growing up? And, and how did it become what it is today? A couple things came together. It was kind of a... Conf- conglomeration of things. One was that my parents grew up in Los Angeles, um, South Central area, and they met and they had friends there. So when they would take um, my sister and I down to visit their friends in LA, often it would include a Disneyland trip. So that was through the 70s, um, mid mid to late 70s, we would go as a family or my sister and I and their, their friends' children they would dump us, the four of us, at Disneyland, and then they would go to Knott's for chicken dinner, right? So um, that was kind. That's part of it, right? Grew up with n- not all the time Disneyland. I wasn't like a local, but like annual Disneyland. It was a, a destination. 
Right. Um, part of it is that I've always been a collector um, and a collector in the sense of kind of popular culture and marketing, even before I knew it. When I was a little kid, I loved Star Wars cards, of course, you know, Star Wars, but I would make my own packages and draw, you know, I just loved packaging and creating things. Um, when Pet Rocks came out, I begged my mom, like, you got to buy me a Pet Rock. Somehow that just <laughs> like spoke to me. So I'd always like that kind of thing, you know, like co commercial collectible type hmm. stuff, even when I was a little kid, right? So Disney and I kind of fit right into that as I grew up and started to appreciate art. Um, I was always an artist. I had that See, my parents didn't really listen to pop music, um, but they, they did listen to, well, they bought us all the Disneyland records, 12, the 12-inch 12 records, right, with the books. And so my parents also were youth leaders and had this youth group, and they had, so they always had a copy of the Haunted House record that Disneyland did because they would have a Haunted House every Halloween um, at their church. So right? the special so effects album? Yeah, yeah, okay. the special effects record. So I grew up with that and with the Haunted Mansion record, um, I love that record to death. I traced the pictures all the time, would break the records. We must, by the time I kind of realized what was going on, like I would say high school, I was going through our old records and we had like three of those records, but only one album, you know, and my mom said, well, you kept breaking up, you know, tracing the pictures and the records. Um, so I guess kind of putting all that stuff together. Um, I can't say I was, it was not really the animation. I love Disney animation. Don't get me wrong. But that's not really what pulled me in. I wasn't a big, those movies changed my life. It was more about the um, Disneyland and kind of recognizing the commercial nature, but the influence on culture. Even though I didn't quite realize how to put that into words, <laughs> it was kind of that angle that tugged at me personally. Because um, I went to school to be a, a designer, graphic designer, and art was always kind of, I was always the kid at school that, people would want to draw, draw, draw me a picture, you know, that kind of thing. So, and I loved monsters. I was a monster. Oh, that's the other thing. Mom, big monster kid. Like all I famous, all I would spend my allowance on was famous monster magazines and monster comic books. And they were mostly universal monsters, but hammer, all that kind of stuff, you know, the, the good sixties monster atomic age, mm -hmm. scary, but not gross type of thing that really was my thing like Godzilla and the creature from the black lagoon and all the universal monsters and the mummy and all that stuff. I just, that was kind of, and Halloween, right? Just buying all this makeup and costumes and going into the drugstore at Halloween. And just, it was like Chris better than Christmas. Cause I could use my allowance to buy vampire blood tubes and vampire teeth and all this great stuff. Right. So that whole picture, that's kind of my childhood. Right. And so it kind of first landed on the Haunted Mansion, which dragged me into Disney and Imagineering as a bigger thing to, to study and learn about. Um, that's kind of the twisted path that brought me mm -hmm. to kind of where I'm at right now. Haunted Mansion has such a rich history, too. So I'm sure you, once you dove in, you, it was hard to figure out where to where to stop for hard you. Hard to back out, yeah. yeah. It is, that's true, because really the whole story of Disneyland has some part, it all fits into what happened with the Haunted Mansion. And then when Walt Disney died, the Haunted Mansion launches where Imagineering went from that point. So it's kind of a, a hub, to use an important word, you know, of how everything worked with Imagineering, in my opinion. So that was another big part of the puzzle. I'm such a big fan of nostalgia. I've been listening for over a decade now, and you guys gel so well, but with very different personalities. There's Kristen Pfeiffer, Becky, and Dave Braylon, and of course yourself. How did nostalgia come to be? So I 
thought of the name, or I thought, I believed I thought up the word nostalgia. I later found it on a newspaper search in some New York Times article in the 70s, I think, talking about a mouse, Mickey Mouse collector, and he just used it as headline, nostalgia. So I thought, darn it, it wasn't the first. <laughs> but I thought it was clever. Um, I think I was trying to come up with a blog. Blogs were kind of a big deal in, I don't know, around 2005, right around there. Um, and I wanted to do one of these Disney blogs. You know, I kind of wanted to be a a kind of a hoity-toity armchair historian. There's a, there's that world on the internet of Disney kind of historians, a little bit, a little bit bitter, a little bit you know negative, but really deep deep dive into Disney history. I thought so I could be that bitter one. and negative because they don't want things to change. That type of th- I would say so, okay. and that was me being edit. Ed- editorializing. Um, I don't want to become fake news here, but it's, it's not really, you know, I mean, they, I'm sure they feel like they are holding people to account with their opinions. They are, you know, that kind of thing, but there's, it's kind of, and it's kind of gone to more towards the Twitter world, the Disney Twitter these days. I would say that morphed into Disney Twitter. Um, but at the time I thought it was really, I mean, it is, there's some amazing research in, in this Disney blog historian world that I wanted to become a part of. At the same time on Doom Buggies, we were having a pretty substantial message board in the early 2000s. There, social media wasn't really a thing. There was MySpace, but, you know. Um, and so message boards were a big deal. We had thousands of people. Disney came to us with the Haunted Mansion movie to kind of do some, you know, grassroots promotion. And it really took... I mean, our audience just grew and grew and grew, right? So I saw people leave, like Ricky left from Doom Buggies, or didn't leave, but he went on to start Inside the Magic. And Lou had written me a little bit, and he was like, hey, I'm putting this book together. Can you help me with my website? And I said, well, it's not really my thing. Then he went and became WDW Radio, right? So I saw um, people in Doom Buggies kind of finding their niche and following it. And I thought, you know what, I can... Doom Buggies, while it became a big thing, that was never really my goal to have them community. I wasn't really good at that. And I had a lot of moderators and it caused lots of problems because all communities with moderators have problems. Just, it just happens. Right. So, and I wasn't really, I wanted more to be a creator. Right. So I started Mousestalgia thinking I would have a blog called Mousestalgia. It sounds like one of those heavy Disney history blogs. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I kind of started kicking it around. Meanwhile, Kristen and I were good friends and she and, uh, and one of our friends named Beth were getting together and we were thinking, well, I have these other friends that started all these these podcasts. That sounds like something that's kind of up and coming. Maybe we could do that. And Kirsten and I kicked it around. We came up with some ideas. We literally went to a restaurant and took some napkins and drew down, wrote down some ideas. Wow. And, um, didn't quite gel, right? We didn't quite figure out what we wanted it to be. I wasn't sure I wanted to change nostalgia to that yet because I still was starting to come up with an idea for the blog and everything. So anyway, it kind of, for a year, it festered a little bit. And then I met Dave and Becky. I mean, basically Becky and my wife worked together. We became friends. We were going to the Maker Fair once and I was talking to Dave and just telling him, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. He's like, yeah, that's cool. I have this recording stuff. You know, if you want me to help you engineer it, I could do that. And then he casually mentioned that he had done some radio hosting in college. And I said, well, you know, it's going to need a host. Maybe you could host it. And that's literally how nostalgia started. Um, Dave and I just agreed to like, let's try this. And Kristen, we brought on board because she and I had already kind of planned to do it. I mean, and the good fortune here, I mean, Dave and I were not that, we didn't really know each other that well when we started it. So we, we are good friends now and we started in a friendly relationship, but it is a little, I mean, here's a little behind the scenes stuff. We did kind of, know that people want to hear friendly banter so we did make friendly banter on a show you know i mean 
it, we didn't all start out as best Disney friends, although they had come to my one of my Doom Muggies events. So we all had mutual, I guess you could say we had a mutual respect for each other and mm-hmm. what we brought to the table. Um, but we've become friends since. Kristen and I were good friends already, so. And still learning about what uh, you guys each bring to the table, too, your strengths and, and oh, what absolutely. your interests are. Yeah, Absolutely. We did know kind of from the early start that I would be the history guy, Kristen would be the funny person, uh, Dave would be the host, and Becky would be the resort specialist. We kind of knew that. So we did know we had these pieces that would work as a whole. Um, we didn't know quite how it would fit. We didn't know Becky would actually become a travel agent. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that kind of worked well um, that we weren't positive about. But we kind of knew Becky's going to talk about the new pools. I'm going to talk about like the collectible merchandise and mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle there, Dave and Kristen will fill it up. That's kind of how it started. Yeah. Great plan. Love the show. Thanks. So what were some of the biggest struggles you had starting up as you guys were getting to know each other and just figuring everything out? The biggest struggles were probably um, mental gymnastics. Like, are we going to do this? Are we not going to do this? So, so anyone can start a podcast and anyone can do it well for five or six weeks. And then, then it starts to become, this is this much X amount of work, right? And, and it depends how you set up your podcast. Like if you don't have X amount of time, you can set it up to just be, we're just going to record and put that on the air. And that's, that's our podcast, right? But we kind of knew we wanted it to be a little bit more polished than that. So by, I don't know, six or a couple months in, we kind of realized, okay, this is this much work. So then it's for all of us to decide, do we really want to do that much work every week, right? And because at the time we were only doing it every two weeks and it still was a little bit starting to become a real, right? And so um, I guess it's fortunate in a way and also uh, difficult in a way. The four of us, I mean, part of the reason we've never missed a week in 12 years is not one of us wants to be the one that's responsible for it not to be that week. You know, we're very um, tenacious about this show, especially now. Like, who's going to be the one that says we don't go 12 years in one week, right? So, um, and I'm sure it will happen for some important reason. We will eventually miss a show, right? But we haven't yet, just because we're tenacious about it. Um, But I would say the the biggest struggle was really getting to that point of saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. It's like, job number two you have your job that pays you and then you have your job that pays in different ways and we hadn't even yet figured that out for sure um we kind of guesstimated Lou's audience and we thought this is all walt disney world there's really not a lot of disneyland stuff we maybe can you know find some audience similar and we didn't find a similar audience we still haven't to Lou. like he's you know and so for a while there we were thinking what is the what is the trajectory trajectory supposed to look like here um, it's whatever is in your head, right? So, but we, you know, had to also wrestle with that. Like, is it worth doing if we're going to plateau? And you know, how long do we live with the plateau? And do we know enough to get past that and to grow the show? You know, do we have enough answers to do this kind of stuff? We really didn't have. We didn't know a lot of that stuff. And also, just feedback, small feedback. Like at the time when someone, when we get one email from someone that said, you know, this is amazing, we would think, all right. We're going to do it next week. I know you didn't set out trying to build a community, but you certainly have. And you've created events. And I was telling these guys before the show, uh, you created, can you talk about that Tahitian Terrace uh, recreation? That's amazing to me that you were able to work with Disney and Disneyland and pull that off. Can you tell us what that is, first of all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So when was that? 2000 and I don't remember 
sometime. Unfortunately, I wasn't there, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't know, six years, seven years ago, we, we decided that we wanted to, um, do an event at Disneyland because I had done, because I, we started the show because I had hosted a party at Disneyland for Doom Buggy's 10th anniversary. And I did that largely on the backs of people that knew how to do it, um, that worked for Doom Buggies in that social community that I didn't really know how to manage very well. I had good people working there for me, which was fortunate, right? And they helped me figure out how are we going to host this event? Um, to celebrate 10 years of Doom Buggy. So we rented the Blue Bayou, we rented the Haunted Mansion for an hour, we rented the Hitchhiking Ghosts in front of it, which were by far the most expensive part of the whole shebang. Um, Disney wow. knows what its characters are worth. <laughs> <laughs> and we um, and we charged basically what we could, but we charged enough for to pay for it. I think it was 150 bucks or $200 or something like that. And we paid for it with that. I think we got some deals because we had someone that was a club 33 member that knew some of the people that worked at Disneyland that could say that could make the point of this isn't a wedding. It's not a corporation. It is a, a avid group of fans that just really want to support themselves. We're going to have all these Disney legends there. Can you work with us? And they did disneyland worked with us of course it was also i guess 11 years ago so um things were a lot different at disneyland 11 years ago than they are now it was just starting to become kind of what we know of as disneyland now with the pass holders and everything um but it was great i mean we had existencio there and um who else? bob Gurr, um neil patrick harris came just to hang out it was a pretty fun party right so i did that and it was reasonable. Like you could do it. I, I had, like I said, the good fortune of someone that kind of knew some people at Disneyland that could make a good case for why this was a valuable thing for us to do. And we did it, right? And so I knew that that could be done. So that's why when Mouse Dodger was rolling, our sponsor, Becky at MEI Mouse Fan Travel, she said, you know, you guys should start to host things for your listeners because that's how you can start to build community. And um, she kind of knew how to host these things at Walt Disney World because she did it a lot with Lou um, and WDW Radio. Um, but she wanted to get kind of into the Disneyland world. And mm-hmm. so she was kind of new at Disneyland, right? So it was another tenacious thing. She wanted to make a splash. And I just said, you know what? Well, the place is there. We can. And what, what I had originally thought was we'll bring in one one dancer to do some Tahitian dances. We'll have a kind of a buffet reminiscent and we'll have someone come speak like Rolly Crump. I'd hoped to get Rolly Crump because we had spoken with him before. He's not a friend or anything, but I had a good relationship with him and prof- well, not professionally, but you know, res- mutual respect. So sure. I thought maybe he will come do this. And then it turned out, um, I think Disneyland itself kind of was the, the, the key here. They really wouldn't, let us do anything like that unless it fit into a mold. Um, And you know what? Still to this day, I don't think all the approvals were made. They kind of kept giving us deadlines. And there was a multitude of approvals and things that had to be agreed on by different places at Disneyland. Um, And they would eventually get like a tentative okay. Then we would just move forward and move forward. (laughs) Uh, Because like we used the logo. I mean, they Disneyland put this program together for us that's what disneyland did they said you can still do what you want with the history of it we can host it here um you can have whatever kind of meal you want but the program we have to like it's entertainment in disneyland we have to do that ourselves and so um i wasn't going to complain about that i knew there was no possible way we could afford that but Mm -hmm. um our sponsor becky at mouse fan travel said well let me 
deal with them. You guys put the show together. I met Becky um, at an event in Indianapolis. I could see her just making things happen. <laughs> yeah, she worked with rock bands in her previous life before opening wow. her own travel agency. So she kind of has that marketing entertainment background, right? So she kind of had that part of it. Plus now she's in charge of this major, huge travel agency. So she wanted to do something really super special. So she worked with Disneyland to recreate the the show, we worked on getting Rolly Crump to come speak about the, um, because he worked on the, the Tiki Room and mm-hmm. he sculpted the Tiki's basically for both the Terrace and the Tiki Room and Polynesian Resort over at Disney World. And then a couple of our imaginary friends were like, oh, we got to come and they invited. So it turned into this thing, right? They invited Tony Baxter and Bob Gurr heard about it. He had to come. So it turned out that Disneyland hired the son of the original knife, um, fire knife dancer from the original Tahitian Terrace dinner show. And um, he had since then started his own Polynesian dance troupe. Mm-hmm. So they came and did a replica show. Everything was exactly the same because he remembered it from his father, except for he couldn't do a fire knife dance. It's some regulations, right? So he had to just use knives, right? <laughs> swords. <laughs> swords. <laughs> but. Otherwise, it was exactly the same. We had this amazing buffet. We even had the grog like punch that they used to serve, the Tishan Terrace punch. It was the most amazing night. That I, I mean, we'll never do anything like that at Disneyland again. Nothing will ever happen like that. It's, it's, right. it's out of the range of podcasts. We got fortunate, you know, and, and Becky, to this day, I, I don't know what it, I don't know if I should even say this. I, I don't know what it cost. <laughs> we didn't pay. Like, we didn't pay what you think uh, we, you would have we charge right. people as much as we could right like and think they'll come and not not just say this is the most ridiculous thing <laughs> i think we charge them 300 dollars or something yeah but it was saying that it was kind of a token fee to be honest i mean becky just poured her i mean it was she's trying to make herself uh, or get herself involved with disneyland in a good strong way and i think she really did that and disneyland loved it i mean we had people from disneyland just kind of checking out what's going on through the whole process they wanted to know what are they doing and how is it going to work and you notice d23 hosted a couple very similar events Mm -hmm. the next following year um i'm sure they had been inspired by what we did well it's Um, it's it's interesting how sometimes they don't realize how big of an audience uh, they have for certain aspects until they see a show like yeah. Nostalgia pull something like that in because of the community that you guys have yeah. created. And, and it was similar, even though it was like prohibitively expensive, it was still, even in that amount, it was still largely a similar situation to the Dumbuggies thing in that I had, we had advocates in Disneyland that just wanted to see this happen. Mm. That's why it kind of happened, right? It wouldn't, you can't just go there and say, oh, I want to recreate Adventure Through Inner Space. Let's just... There's this room. Let's just do it. Like they're pretty protective of their properties, and I think they just really we just got really fortunate that Becky advocated for no. These people are serious. Like it's gonna be the Tahitian Terrace, and we're gonna respect it and admire it. And I think enough people in Disneyland, inside the green shiny building, were like, okay, well, I really want to see what we can do and what could happen here. I mean, you don't see these things very often because they're really Disneyland's not really set up to to do it they're more set up for corporations to rent a big space and have wine and hors d'oeuvres out on the street or weddings or or some prince that has millions of dollars that can just rent fantasy land and do whatever he wants mm-hmm. you know what i mean they sure. they're set up for that but not really for these little kind of well how much does it cost fan events yeah yeah fan events right. right but it worked out for us in this instance i kind of want to i want to go big picture because i hear teacher art, podcaster, 
graphic design. I know you don't have a typical week, um, but what do you find, you know, maybe a mantra or a, a one-liner that keeps you motivated uh, and balancing all those things in the air? Oh, boy. Boy, this is going to sound trite, but in the words of Marty Sklar, if you can dream it, you can do it, maybe. I, I, I mean, I don't actually know that I have a that specific of a thing keeping me going. It's probably more of a vision of... Oh, that's a really good question, actually. Teaching is... I'm late in life. I've come to teaching. This is my sixth year as an educator. I teach photography and graphic design at a, at a high school, at a conservatory. And so... And in my sixth year, like, I finally feel like I'm... I'm, an, I'm a teacher now, um, but I still like, I don't know all the things, all those things you listed that I try to do. I don't know what teachers, I think, believe like, well, teaching is that one thing. And I feel a little guilty, like I should feel that way, but I get tugged in the historian, like, let's learn about things way. I really want to just learn about things and then put it out there to tell everyone. And that's a tug on me. In addition to educating kids, I love kids. The, the kids I teach, the high schoolers are amazing. And graphic design has always been something I've loved since I was a kid. You know, like I said, I was making those Star Wars card packages when I was nine years old, right? So things pull me into different directions. It's very confusing for myself too. So I'm glad you've dragged this all up. Now that I can <laughs> lay in bed tonight all night long. Worrying about it. Well, everybody's going to love joining us now, right? <laughs> Well, no, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's it's good to be reflective and find out what that branding is that, that you have. I mean, what keeps you going? And now you're a teacher. I mean, you're passing along that experience. And I think we're all dads on on this show here and yourself, and that's probably the, the ultimate goal, right? And so that leads me to your book, The Unauthorized Story of Walt Disney's Haunted Mansion. You wanted to take this topic and share everything you know about it. And it's a fantastic start to finish book. Was it difficult working knowing that it would be the unauthorized version? How, how were you able to break down some barriers and get all the information you wanted to get? Putting the book together was also another defined moment where I said, I'm going to be an author and write a book. It was more I realized I wanted to do conventions because I knew all this great stuff that people wanted to hear about. So I wanted to talk about it. Um, even though I'm a very shy person, that was a weird rec recognition in myself. Like, but I, but I want to try this. Um, and I kind of knew I could make a little money just selling like a little chat book or something to go along with my booth at a convention. Right. So I had written some magazine articles and things about the haunted mansion, done a lot of interviews with newspapers and things. And I just had all that little bits of stuff. And I thought this could be a book because also the simultaneously the Disney niche publishing was becoming a bigger deal. Like that was a big part of it. Like I recognize now there's a marketplace for this. Um, People are writing their Disney history books. Armchair historians are putting what they know together, and there are publishers that are printing this stuff. Everyone started to not be scared of Disney, basically. That was part of it, too. I realized, hey, this is not going to, you know, someone will publish, publish this book easily. So I wrote it, 50,000 words. I started with probably 10,000 words of magazine articles and stuff I had written for Doom Buggies. And then I went to talk to Rolly Crump for a day or a few hours, I don't know, an afternoon, and kind of formed like a little nucleus that I could tell the, the, the story of the Imagineers around that interview. Um, and so I used that as kind of a leap off point for some of the history. You know, also Jason Sorrell, who wrote the Disney book, mm -hmm. he was a friend, is a friend, and he had hung around Doom Buggies quite a bit while he was writing the 
the Disney official Haunted Mansion book. So we kind of knew, and he'd kind of talked to us a little bit. We kind of knew what he was trying to do. And he wished he could have written a long book about the Haunted Mansion, but he realized Disney wanted picture book, of course, um, which makes sense. Of course, that's going to sell way more copies than a history book, a, a picture book. So he had to kind of condense a lot of information so he could fit all the pictures in there. And so I also knew like, well, this will work great because I can just tell people, oh, go buy his book and you'll see all the pictures, then buy my book and you'll get all the like information about how it all came to be. A friend of mine works in Hollywood and works with Guillermo del Toro. And I had written Guillermo del Toro will on occasion answer my emails. That's as far as I'll take that. Like if you're not friends. He will respond to me as the doom buggies guy. He's a big or was a big fan of doom buggies, the, the site and the community. Right. And so, um, and I had a friend that worked with him that grease the wheels a little bit and said, Hey, my buddy works for doom buggies. You know, that website, Hey, he just wrote a book. Will you read it? And he was like, Oh, I'll write the introduction." So I was like, that's so awesome. But then, like, when I finished, he was just going into production with a movie. It was like, oh, there's no way, right? And so he said, send me your book. And so I sent it to him. And literally, okay, I'm going to give you some more secret information here. Like, don't tell anyone except for <laughs> your, your listeners, right? So um, he sent it back within, like, 12 hours. And he had sent back this amazing, just this amazing um, blurb for the cover, you know, a cover mm -hmm. blurb. And I am going to be grateful forever to Guillermo del Toro for writing that. Um, I believe it's accurate. Do I think he read the whole entire, I mean, in theory, you can read my whole book in about five hours if you sit there and read it. Do I think he sat there in the 12 hours and found time to read my whole book? I'm going to let you just um, <laughs> make your own decision about that. But but I think he read enough of it to know like, oh, this is the book that, you know, Haunted Mansion fans want, wanted. You know, mm -hmm. Like it's something that tells you all the stories and all the secrets. And since then I've had two revisions and I keep learning everyone about the Haunted Mansion just keeps pouring information into the world. I have a whole bunch more information now. So I'll probably write another revision for next year. We keep revising it. Um, it gets a little bit longer and a little bit longer. But the Disney archives, someone saw a couple of copies sitting on the shelf in there when they went recently so i know it finally made it there <laughs> but i mean they keep not doesn't mean a lot other than there's a book published about disney so we better keep track of it is all that really means but still i'll take it as a a win one last question for you what is your favorite disney moment oh man you know the one thing i will say i am so grateful to, to mousestalgia for is so many great disney moments we've been able to have um it's really hard to choose one. I mean, I made friends with Jody daily through Doom Buggies. And I mean, friends, it's more professional acquaintances. And, you know, I never know how to call internet friends. Like, are you friends? Are we acquaintances? What are we? You know, like, we don't go have beers every weekend. But, I, but, we're, but they invited me out for beers once. So I guess we're friends, right? So Kevin and Jody are kind of friends, right? <laughs> and they were hosting a party for Richard Sherman's 80, 85th birthday. I guess it was a few couple years ago, right? And so... Um, they invited me to come to their house for Richard Sherman's birthday party. And that was pretty amazing. I said, are you sure? <laughs> Did you mean this email to come to me? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, we had the good Jeff fortune. Jeff Bam or Jeff Bam? Which one <laughs> exactly. did you want? <laughs> did they ham you meant? Right. Um, and so that was amazing. Like, you know, I, I went and there was, you know, some Disney luminaries there. I mean, Richard Sherman probably had a, a few birthday parties, mm -hmm. but it was, he was there with, and then we sang, he played the piano in their parlor and we sang Richard Sherman songs. Wow. It, he had a cake, like a little golden record design. And it was just amazing evening. That's probably, 
if I had to pick one, that's what came to mind. So wow. it was an amazing moment. Yeah. I don't think you can top that. Oh, you know, maybe someday you're saying I was on the Hyperion Hub. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so, so much. We're so happy to sit down and talk with you. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Anytime. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a story to share with us, you can email us at podcast at com. Wherever you listen to our podcast, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Have a great week, everybody. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub. Thank you.